You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection. It is volume 211 in the collected works. This is lecture 3, The Transformation of World Views, given in Dornach, March 25th, 1922. We have often turned our attention to times gone by, and in a certain sense we will do so again today with the goal of establishing several vantage points for considering human history and development. If we look back thousands of years to what I call the ancient Indian epoch, we discover that the people of that time perceived the world around them very differently than we do today, to choose a much later time. When we look back on these ancient times, we realize that people simply did not see the natural world as we see it. They still perceived spiritual beings on every part of the earth's surface, in mountains and rivers, as well as in the clouds, light and so on, surrounding the earth. It would have been unthinkable for them to speak about nature as we do today. To them, they would be, that would be like sitting down with a group of corpses and saying that we are in the company of human beings. This comparison, although somewhat grotesque, is certainly commensurate with the reality of the situation. Because they perceived beings of spirit and soul in everything around them, people who lived thousands of years before the beginning of the Christian era would have experienced the nature we encounter today as the mere corpse of the natural world. As modern human beings, when we read in poetry, myths, or legends that people once believed that beings of spirit and soul inhabited springs, rivers, mountains, and so on, we think these people of ancient times were simply exercising their imagination or applying poetic license. We are naive to think so, however. These people really did perceive soul-spiritual beings as truly as we perceive colors or the movement of leaves on the trees. They had direct perceptions of the world of spirit and soul, and they would have dismissed what we now call nature as the mere corpse of the natural world. But in some respects, a few individuals in these ancient times aspired to a mode of perception that differed from that of their contemporaries. As you know, modern people, if their circumstances allow it, may attempt to achieve a different view of the natural world through studying by becoming educated, what we call this science, and it involves learning terms and acquiring concepts that describe the inner workings of things we otherwise see only from the outside. Although such science did not exist in the ancient times we are considering here, Some individuals of those times aspired nonetheless to transcend the common mode of perception available to them in everyday life. But they did not study in the same way we do today. Instead, they performed certain exercises, 
not the ones we talk about in anthroposophy, but exercises more closely bound up with the human body. For example, some of these exercises altered respiration and made it something different from what it was in its natural state. Instead of doing experiments in laboratories, the people of these ancient times experimented on themselves, so to speak, by regulating their breathing. After inhaling, for example, they held their breath and attempted to experience what happened inside the body as a consequence of this change. <clears throat> the character of these exercises is preserved, although in weakened form, in yoga. We should not attempt to imitate such yogic breathing exercises today. At that time, however, people experienced them as a way of achieving insights on a higher level than their ordinary perceptions of nature, which included not only what we now see in the natural world, but also the spiritual and soul aspects of natural objects. When the people of ancient India deliberately altered their breathing, these spiritual and soul elements disappeared and the natural world appeared to them as we see it today. To achieve this altered perception, the people of those ancient times had to do specific exercises, or their view of the beings and objects around them would be full of soul-spiritual entities. They banished these entities, so to speak, by altering their breathing. As educated people, in quotes, I use the expression we now apply to those who aspire to insights that transcend the ordinary, these individuals strove to experience the natural world as a corpse without the beings of soul and spirit that normally pervaded it. We might also say that when these people looked out into nature, they experienced themselves within a cosmos full of weaving, surging soul-spiritual beings. But at the same time, they also felt the way we modern people feel when we are having vivid dreams and cannot wake up. That is how they felt. But what did these individuals, the educated people of their times, achieve through the special exercises that extricated them from the spiritual ebb and flow of life and deadened it until they truly felt they were surrounded by its corpse? What did they hope to accomplish? They were attempting to achieve a stronger sense of self, an enhanced experience of selfhood. Modern human beings say, I am, all the time. I is a word we use very frequently, as a matter of course, from morning till night. For these people of ancient times, however, saying, I, or I am, was not something they took for granted in their ordinary, everyday experience. It was something they had to acquire through effort, to achieve an inner experience that allowed them to say, I am, with a certain degree of truthfulness, in other words, to become conscious of their own existence, they first had to perform exercises such as the breathing exercise I described. The I am experience which we take for granted was possible for the people of ancient India only when they made an inner effort to alter their breathing, to wake themselves up, so to speak, they first had to kill off their environment, at least as far as their perception of it was concerned. Doing so allowed them to achieve the conviction that they themselves existed, and they could then say, I am, to themselves. This I am gave them something that we now take for granted, namely 
the inner development of the intellect, the possibility of developing internalized, detached thinking. If we go back in time to civilizations in which the ancient Eastern mode of perception was the norm, we find that people experienced an ensouled natural world in their daily life, but had a very weak, almost non-existent sense of self. They were completely incapable of summing up this sense of self in the statement, I am. Individuals trained in mystery centers learned to experience the I am, but not as a matter of course as we experience it today. They were able to say I am out of inner conviction and inner experience only in moments when they altered their breathing sufficiently. In these moments they experienced something that we modern human beings also do not truly experience, at least not initially. If you think back to your childhood, your memories reach back to a certain point, but no further. Once upon a time you were a baby, and you have no recollection of your inner experience at that time. As the, At this point your memory fails you. There can be no doubt that you existed as a baby. You crawled around on the floor and flapped your hands in the air. You were cuddled by your mother and father. But your ordinary adult consciousness retains no inkling of your inner experiences at that time. Nonetheless, you were having soul experiences that were much livelier and more intense than later ones. This intense psychological activity sculpted your brain and pervaded and shaped the rest of your body. The people of ancient India felt themselves transported into this infantile state in the moments when they said, I am. Try to imagine what that was like. People saying, I am, did not feel themselves to be in the present moment. They felt sent back in time to when they were babies. They felt as they had when they were babies, and from this vantage point they said to their entire later life, I am. They did not feel at all capable of saying, I am, in the present moment. To do so, they felt that they had to go back to the very beginning of this life. From that very early point in life, the force that says, I am, then spilled over into all the years that followed. This regression was a very natural experience. But when they experienced it, the people of ancient Indian times said to themselves, I am going back into the little head I had when I was a baby, because the soul activity within it, which now becomes transparent to me, says, I am. This is still true of modern human beings. We are not aware of it, but the people of ancient times were. They said of themselves, The soul life I knew as a baby is not of this world. I brought it with me from the spiritual world, from a time when I had no body. In this soul activity I sensed and felt and experienced my I am most strongly. I brought it with me, and it flowed out into the body I acquired and shaped. After flowing out into the shaping of my body, my own soul life occupied this body from within. Prior to living in this body, however, it had lived in the world of spirit and soul. By regulating their breathing, the yogis of ancient India went back in time to their infancy and became aware of the time before earthly life. The world that appeared as if in memory when the I am flashed through their souls was not their current outer world, which they had killed off. 
but the outer world they had known before descending into the physical earthly world. They experienced this in the same way that we remember something that happened to us ten years ago. Let me use a modern expression again, inappropriate as it may sound when applied to those ancient times. By studying to become yogis, these individuals were lifted out of their present earthly existence and into soul-spiritual existence. They owed this possibility to their studies. The everyday consciousness of the yogis was different from the one we know today, but their special training enabled them to think. This was something their contemporaries could not do. They could dream, but they could not think. The yogis, however, thought their way into the supersensible world that they had left to descend into earthly existence. This mode of perception was characteristic of the time that preceded Greco-Roman culture in the fourth post-Atlantean epoch. In ancient Greece and Rome, the I am pervaded the body to a greater extent during ordinary day consciousness. It is true that the I was still inherent in the verb in Greek and Latin and not as clearly separate as it is today. Nonetheless, the people of those times experienced the I quite distinctly and this experience became a natural self-evident fact of inner life. On the other hand, people were losing the ability to experience the natural world as ensouled. The Greeks still experienced these two perspectives side by side, even without special training. They still experienced, though less strongly than the people of earlier times, the spirit and soul in every spring, river, mountain and tree. At the same time, however, they were able to disregard this ensouled aspect of nature and to perceive its dead aspect, and they also developed a sense of self. This is what gave ancient Greek culture its particular character. The Greeks did not yet perceive the world as we do. It is true that the concepts and ideas they developed about the world were similar to ours, but they also still took perceptions conveyed in images very seriously. As a result, their life was totally different from ours. For example, we go to the theater for entertainment. In ancient Greece, this was true in Euripides' time, but it was barely the case in Sophocles' time and not at all in Aeschylus' time or earlier. In those times, people had other reasons for going to the theater. The ancient Greeks had a clear sense of the soul-spiritual beings living in every tree and bush, spring and river. In the moments when they experienced these beings, their sense of self was not strong. Yoga training had been needed for the ancient Indians to develop a sense of self. For the Greeks, a strong sense of self was a natural development, but it made everything around them appear dead, so that they saw only the corpse of the natural world. This experience was exhausting and consuming for the Greeks. They realized that life consumed people, and they experienced perceiving only the dead aspect of nature as a mental and physical illness of sorts. In the early days of Greek culture, people experienced quite vividly that daily life made them ill and that they needed something to make them healthy again. That something was tragedy. People felt they were being consumed and making themselves sick, so they went to see tragedies performed in order to be healed, to become whole again. 
In Aeschylus's time, people still experienced the tragedian as a physician who made exhausted people well again. The feelings stirred up by the tragedies, fear, sympathy for the hero, and so on, worked like medicine. The spectators were filled with these feelings, which provoked a crisis in them, similar to the crisis in pneumonia, for example. Overcoming the crisis then led back to health. The people of ancient Greece approached the tragedies expecting to be healed, knowing that awareness of the eye had driven the gods out of the world around them. In essence, Greek plays depicted the gods, the divine world, and the destiny that even the gods must suffer. In short, these plays presented the spiritual forces at work behind the dead world of nature. For the Greeks, therefore, art still involved healing. And when the first Christians modeled their lives on the embodiment of the Christ in the person of Jesus and contemplated the contents of the Gospels, Christ Jesus' suffering and death on the cross, his resurrection and ascension, they experienced a similar inner tragedy and healing. This is why the Christ was and still is called the Savior, the Physician, the Great Healer of the world. The Greeks of antiquity sensed this healing in their tragedies, and humankind must now gradually learn to feel the healing in the historically enacted mystery, or great tragedy, of Golgotha. In ancient Greece, especially in the time before Aeschylus, when rites previously celebrated only in the obscurity of the mysteries had already become more public, what did people see in performances of the earliest tragedies? The god Dionysus appeared on stage. Dionysus was the god who worked out of earthly forces, out of the spiritual earth, and therefore participated in earthly suffering. As a god, Dionysus experienced on a soul level, although not on a physical level, as was the case in the mystery of Golgotha, what it meant to live among human beings who undergo death. The Greeks felt that the god, Dionysus, suffered deeply as a result of his life among humans, because he saw all human suffering. In the earliest tragedies, the only active character on stage was the suffering god Dionysus, who appeared with a choir that recited his words so that people could hear what was going on in his soul. This is how the god Dionysus was experienced in image form in ancient Greece. The single character of Dionysus gradually gave way to multiple characters, and the plays developed into dramas. Later, humankind would experience the suffering and dying God, the Christ, as a reality, as an historic fact of humankind's evolution. The tragedy depicted on Greek stages had to take place once as an historic fact for all of humankind to see and feel. But as the time approached for this historic event, the drama that had been held so sacred in ancient Greece and experienced as healing medicine for humankind came down from its pedestal, so to speak, and was transformed into mere entertainment, as was already the case in the plays of Euripides. After human perception began to see the natural world as unensouled, a time approached when humankind would need something other than seeing the world of spirit and soul presented in images, namely the actual historical mystery of Golgotha. The yoga students of ancient Indian culture 
held their breath, retaining it in the body in order to experience in it the indwelling divine I-impulse. As students of yoga, people experienced the divinity in themselves through respiration. This was no longer the case in later times. By then, however, human beings had learned to think, and they thought that the soul enters the human body on the breath. For yoga students, this was a matter of direct experience. But the people of later times said, And the Lord God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. When the people of Jewish antiquity said this, they experienced it somewhat abstractly instead of concretely, as the people of still earlier times had been able to do. Different aspects of a newer mode of perception always develop in different parts of the globe. So, while the Hebrews of ancient times were expressing this experience in words, the Greeks were experiencing the existence of the divine within the human being through their drama in the form of images. In the mystery of Golgotha, this drama became an actual event in cosmic history. Meanwhile, the dramatic images became increasingly separated from the reality, devolving into mere images, just as the direct experience of respiration yielded to thoughts expressed in words. The whole constitution of the human soul underwent a change. It became quite natural for human beings to perceive the outer world as dead, devoid of divinity. Human bodies, as part of the outer world, were also seen as devoid of divinity. In consolation, however, the Christ descended into this dead world as the God who truly lived in a human body. Through the resurrection, the Christ impulse passed into all of earthly evolution. As a result, human beings became able to develop a different type of perception. They realized subconsciously that they saw the world as a corpse. By contemplating the crucified Christ, they beheld an image of the dead natural world and the human being crucified upon it. And when they looked up to the risen one, whom the disciples and St. Paul experienced as the living Christ in the cosmos, they saw the divine spirit that people of earlier times had seen when they perceived nature as pervaded with spirit and soul. In earlier times, people saw many different spiritual beings, gnomes and nymphs, sylphs and salamanders, and all of the other beings of the earthly hierarchies. With the dawning of the intellect, however, people felt the urge to integrate this natural diversity into the single figure of the dead Christ Jesus on the cross. In him they saw all the spirituality they had lost in the outer world of nature. They gazed on all this spirituality when they contemplated the fact of the Christ's resurrection as the divine spirit who overcame death. Every human soul can now participate in Christ's essential being. People had lost the ability to see the divine spirit in the natural world around them, but they had gained the ability to rediscover this divine spirit in the Christ by contemplating the mystery of Golgotha. Loss of the ability to behold the spirit in nature gave human beings a sense of self, the possibility of experiencing I-ness. If nature had not become dead to human perception, 
we would never have internalized the I am experience. Having done so, however, we needed a spiritual outer world, which the Christ supplied. Nonetheless, it remains true that the I am, I-ness, is founded on the corpse of the natural world. Let me draw you a diagram. At an earlier stage in humankind's development, human beings experienced the natural world around them as pervaded with soul and spirit. This is what St. Paul sensed. Let us attempt to reconstruct it. All around him was the corpse of what people had once beheld in ancient times as the body of the divine, of the soul-spiritual element. These people beheld mountains in the same way that we behold our own fingers today. It would not have occurred to them to think of mountains as lifeless natural objects, just as it would not occur to us to consider our fingers lifeless objects. They recognized the earth as a being of spirit and soul, and mountains as its limbs. Later, however, when people experienced the internalized I, they perceived nature as dead. We would all stand here like hermits on an earth that is uninsouled and devoid of divinity if we could not look to the Christ. But instead of contemplating the Christ only from the outside, we must now take him into the I. Like St. Paul, we must lift ourselves out of the everyday I am and say, Not I, but the Christ in me. In later times, people still experienced the natural world but they also experienced the personal I am, in contrast to unensouled nature. For this, however, they needed the image of the God in man, which they experienced in the god Dionysus as presented in Greek drama. Still later, when the cross was erected on Golgotha and the drama became an historical reality, people again experienced ensouled nature in the I am. What human beings had lost reappeared within them and radiated outward. Not I, but the Christ in me. What was the experience of the people of ancient times? They would not have been able to formulate it in words. But what they experienced was not I, but the divine spirit around me, in me, everywhere. We lost this all-embracing experience, found it again within ourselves, and can now consciously formulate the originally unconscious experience as not I, but the Christ in me. The original reality, experienced unconsciously when human beings were not yet conscious of the personal I, became a conscious fact in the experience of the Christ within, in the human heart and human soul. I hope these inadequate pictures will help you see what we must now formulate in ideas. Can you see the whole cosmos filled with the Christ Spirit and how that Spirit then descends from the cosmos to come to life within human beings? We must not underestimate the importance of sunlight in our lives. Without sunlight all around us we would be physically unable to live. Perhaps this will help you understand when I tell you that in the ancient times I talked about today human beings experienced themselves as light within light. They felt that they belonged to the light. Instead of saying, I am, they perceived the rays of the sun striking the earth and did not make a distinction between themselves and those rays of sunlight. 
Wherever they perceived light, they also perceived themselves, because they experienced themselves as existing within the light. Whenever light appeared, they felt themselves carried on waves of the sun's light. The same light worked within the being of the Christ. Through him it also works in us. Of course, there are many passages in the Bible that compare the Christ to light, but our anthroposophical attempts to draw attention to the reality of this connection are usually rejected by academic theologians who choose not to know about such things. It is very significant that a professor of theology named Overbeck, who lived in Basel and was a friend of Nietzsche's, once wrote a book about whether contemporary theology was actually still Christian. His intention as a theologian was to make the point that true Christianity still existed in the 1870s, but he also acknowledged that much of what passed for Christianity, including theology, had become unchristian. That is what he attempted to prove in his book and he succeeded to a considerable extent. Anyone who takes the book seriously puts it down, convinced that although many aspects of Christianity persist to this day, modern theology has become unchristian. When theologians talk about Christ, their words are no longer Christian. If opinions such as Overbeck's were taken as seriously as they should be, people would realize not only the need for anthroposophical activity today, but also the significance of anthroposophy as a whole. Above all else, people would become aware of the responsibility we have with regard to anthroposophical knowledge, which actually ought to form the basis of all contemporary knowledge, especially our understanding of society. When people learn that the light of the Christ lives in them, the Christ in me, and experience it fully, they learn to see themselves as more than just part of the corpse of the natural world. The antisocial, asocial character of modern times is due to the perception that human beings belong to nature's corpse. We can achieve a true perception that will unite all human beings in universal brotherhood and sisterhood, a view that will once again imbue humankind with real moral impulses, only if we come to understand the words not I, but the Christ in me. In other words, when the Christ is rediscovered as an active force in human interactions, without this insight we cannot move forward. We need it. We must discover it. If we achieve it and then continue to move forward, all our activity in society will become imbued with the Christ. The end of Lecture 3